I spent probably a good decade pursuing things to kind of fill a void, looking for that thing that could kind of make me happy until it was losing everything. In, in the process of divorce, I, I lost everything, which meant my, my bank account, everything that I had went to zero. And it was actually in that place where I gained my happiness. And it was a very interesting thing. When you have everything else taken away from you, you kind of look towards experiences uh, as being that meaningful thing. And it was having my kids and being able to spend time with them and being able to spend time with my, my friends, my family, and to realize that all I really need is good experiences and I'll be happy. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. If you're ready to join us in the hustle, listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, the creative journey is all worth it. Pai Jersa is the founder and partner of SLR Lounge and Lynn and Jersa Photography, a premier boutique photography and video studio in Southern California. The Lynn and Jersa team photographs over 300 weddings each year with nearly a thousand yearly client commissions. Pai is an educator at heart. He's the creator behind the workshops and resources inside the SLR Lounge Library, which has nearly a million monthly readers. He's also a prolific instructor here on Creative Live with classes on everything from lighting mastery to business systems to engagement and wedding photography. In this episode, Pai Jersa explores how he had to lose everything to gain happiness. He shares personal stories of loss and love, fear and growth. He describes what being raised by a single immigrant father who moved him from Iran to Utah taught him about fear as a child. Pai stopped creating art for a decade after his high school art teacher told him to quit because he wasn't good enough. We talk about mental health and finding the source of stability. He shares his daily routine that helps him stay present throughout the day and why discomfort became his compass. This is We Are Photographers with Pai Jersa, and this is his story. want to start out just diving in and I have seen a quote on your website that says the best things in life are on the other side of fear which mm -hmm. is a Will Smith quote yes so I just want to dive in and ask you why you have that quote up on your site and uh, what is it about the other side of fear that is so important to you Oh, diving deep early. I love it, Kenna. <laughs> Let's see. Um, you know, I think everybody is different in terms of um, what makes them happy and kind of what brings them joy in life. And and most of us would fall into the category of like we derive joy from our relationships, our family, our friends, our children. Um, but there's another really big piece for me that uh, kind of drives and motivates me. And that is 
kind of the next challenge. It's the next kind of thing that I want to be doing and the next accomplishment. And I find that that accomplishment, that, that next goal, that thing that's actually worth doing, it's always on the other side of what's uncomfortable or what you're afraid of or what you don't want to do. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my big thing is pursuing that next thing and, and what is on the other side of that discomfort and that fear. I have a friend who always talks about get comfortable being uncomfortable. And... Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's the only thing that I, I found that throughout my life has really held true in terms of what brings me, um, joy and satisfaction outside of those few other things that we kind of mentioned. So let's go back then. Can you tell me sort of an early scenario where you were facing fear and maybe it's one of the biggest risks you ever took early in your career? Going back kind of to my youth, I kind of feel like I was taught to be afraid from being a baby. Like, I mean, my dad was probably the best person to instill fear in me um, that I know. I mean, we were afraid of uh, as as immigrants and Iranians living in Utah, I was afraid of racism and the constant kind of issues that I would deal with at school and and after school. And my dad taught me to be fearful of not going into the right career and not being able to get a job and, um, you know, being afraid of trusting people. And it was just a constant kind of education on fear. Let's explore some of those. Tell me about your family uh, ending up in Utah. Well, my, my father is, he was divorced and growing up in Iran, he, he felt like there wasn't a lot of opportunity in addition to a, a government that is very backwards in a lot of ways. Um, he wanted to give myself and, and his hopefully future grandkids a, a better opportunity. So he left as a single dad, um, and brought me over to the States, uh, and completed like like basically refinished his masters and everything that he, he needed to do as a single father, um, in the United States while raising me to, you know, then go into a successful career as an, uh, as an engineer. Um, and again, continue to raise me up until I was 16 years of age by himself. So I think my dad did an incredible job. Um, and I, I, myself being a single father, I, I can now relate and understand better what he exactly accomplished. And it's, it's huge. Um, but the flip side of that is that it did come with, you know, a lot of his biases and a lot of things that he learned in life transferred over to me. Um, and a lot of those things included things like you can't trust other people. You can't trust your friends. Um, you know, people will be here for a time and then they'll be gone. Um, you know, be afraid of relying on others or, you know, if you don't have the right background, in the education, you're not gonna be able to find a job. And if you don't get good grades, uh, you won't be able to get into the college that you want to. It's all the traditional stuff, especially that an immigrant father and an immigrant single father might teach you. Um, but it in many ways kind of crippled me because when it came to art, I was kind of taught to overlook it. Like this isn't, you know, this is a great hobby, but you know, you're not going to be able to find a career doing that. And when it comes to all the things that you would dream as a child, I was taught to 
kind of worry that, hey, you're not going to be able to actually make a living doing those things. So you need to be either a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. So for everything that he gave me, um, there was a few of these kind of other pieces that came along with it that I had to kind of decode for myself eventually. So were you artistic as a child? Was that something that, that excited you more than things like the thought of being a doctor or a lawyer? Definitely. As a, as a child, I feel like, and I don't know that I was necessarily good per se, but I was exploring, you know, art constantly and I loved video games and I loved storytelling and I loved movies and television and drawing and, and painting. And I I didn't know necessarily what pieces of these things that I enjoyed. And I don't think I was actually good at any of them really. Like my high school art teacher actually told me, and I think you remember when I said, he said, you should quit. You're not good enough. Um, but those were the things that kind of drew me in compared to, well, everything else, mathematics and sciences and everything. But it wouldn't be till a much later in my life where I actually pursued and explored them. In fact, when my art teacher told me to quit, I actually did uh, for almost a decade. I just stopped everything. So it would take a long time after that place to finally kind of explore and figure out. And I think a lot of times what ends up happening as we're children is we, we find these areas that we like, that we enjoy, but we might not be good at them because they don't, it, it's not quite the right part that fits into your personality and the way that you want to create, right? We, we want to be creative, but there's so many different genres and different ways to be creative. And you're, you're kind of on this search to figure out, Hey, which one is the one that best suits you? Is it photography? Is it cinematography? Is it sound design? Is it, you know, directing? Is it, what are these different creative passions that really, you know, fit with your personality? And before we get a chance to really explore and fall into that right one, we're usually given the fear and the, you know, demotivation that is, sends us down a path of, you stop exploring and you stop figuring those things out. So what happened in those those 10 years, that decade where you kind of pushed your creativity down and uh, and went a different path? And then how did you come back around? Well, I I literally did what my father told me to do. I went to school and got a degree in business and accounting. And I also spoke Cantonese and Mandarin. And so I thought, well, why not add a second degree onto it because I needed to study for the CPA exam. So I needed my 150 college credits for that. So I thought, okay, I'll double major. And I got a degree in Chinese linguistics as well as accounting. Um, went on to work for Ernst & Young, one of the big four accounting firms at the time and earned my CPA. And I, I hated every step of the way. And since we are on you know a topic that's fairly deep and personal, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about fear and working through kind of these subjects in my mind for a long while. And, um, I remember there was a period of months when I was at Ernst Young where I would wake up and in the process of showering, I would think of like just how miserable I was. And, and to the point of like, you're almost, I don't think I would have ever acted out, but I was thinking like, like 
okay, death would probably be better than this, than just living a miserable life. And, 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 and it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, being an accountant is miserable per se. If you enjoyed that, that's a beautiful thing. Like I, I knew a lot of people that really enjoyed their jobs. Um, and I wanted to be them so much. I would, I would pray when I would go to bed at night that I could wake up and love my job. Um, and that I would just be happy and I would wake up in the morning and I would be thinking thoughts of suicide, like for months at a time until I got to this place of like, you know, two years in, it was kind of like, okay, um, this can't be, you know, no matter what you're making in terms of salary, no matter what you're doing in terms of your career path, um, being miserable every day can't be better than doing something that you enjoy, even if you aren't able to support yourself or, you know, even if you make less money or whatever it might be, there's a trade off. And it was kind of when that switch flipped a little bit that I was able to say, you know what, I'm just going to quit and go do my own thing and, um, and see how it goes. First of all, thank you for sharing, because I think that, it's a topic that is so not talked about in our culture today. And mental health is something that, that we're talking about more. Uh, but gosh, I mean, if I, cause I have a similar story in that I was, you know, went to business school, was in a career that I thought was what you were supposed to do. And yeah. I would wake up in the morning, like you said, and not want to get out of bed and be paralyzed. And But thinking then that it was because something was wrong with me, not because it wasn't a good fit for me. 100%. And if you went and saw a doctor, it's funny what they would tell you. They would probably prescribe you a drug and send you on your way. So how did you have the courage to keep going? What What was the the flip because two years of living like that is a really long time yeah it, it, it equated a little bit more because it was I honestly probably enjoyed my my college years my studies I, I did enjoy that although I wasn't studying my passion it was still enjoyable I, I like learning in general and so that was that was okay um yeah those two years are pretty bad and and the, probably the point where it kind of all met ahead for me was just that my, my father was, um, he was struggling with depression, uh, anxiety and all these different things to the point where he had to take an early retirement, um, and stop doing that thing, which he once enjoyed, which was engineering and, and just walk away from it. And he couldn't work and he couldn't do anything because his work environments would just be too stressful. And I, th I started really thinking hard during that time about the concepts of, fear and stability. And I thought, cause that was the thing that my dad always taught me was that you need to get a stable job. You need a stable job so that you can work and get a stable check and, and, you know, consistently pay your rent and your mortgage and all these different things. And this was the path towards career success that, uh, he grew up with and that he instilled in me. And then I saw him go through mental health issues that disabled him, that made it so he couldn't work anymore. And I thought, where is the stability in that notion of like doing something that you hate to get a paycheck? I, I, 
I began to kind of deconstruct this notion and into like, okay, how could it possibly be stable to mentally do a job that you dislike? How can it be stable to be good at a job that you dislike? Like, you know, how do you keep your job if you hate it so much that you can't even do it to perform at a level of someone who actually appreciates and enjoys that thing? Um, and then where's the stability that my dad was talking about all these years when right now, you know, he, he can't even go to work. And then I started to work backwards and say, well, what about all the fear that I was taught to hold? And while at a certain place in my past, I could say that, that those, those things, I was resentful of what was taught to me. I, I began to learn and appreciate where people were coming from. And I started to realize that my dad told me these things because he loves me, because he's afraid that I'm not going to be able to support myself. He's afraid that I'm not going to be successful. He's afraid that I'm going to make the same mistakes that he has. And my art teacher was doing the exact same thing. You know, for a while I was upset and angry and, you know, frustrated. Why would he say something like that? You know, I'm just going to give up everything and stop. And then I realized, you know, from his perspective, he sees a student that he cares about and he's a good artist, but as a good artist, he still struggled to, you know, get his money from his paintings and to be able to establish himself. And at the age of 40 plus years old, he's working as a high school teacher because his art can't sustain him. And so he sees that and he goes, well, I'm good at artwork and I still couldn't make it. Therefore, this student who I care about, I can see that he's not good at drawing and painting. So I'm going to encourage him to put his time where, you know, he's not going to fail. And from that standpoint, their, their encouragement and their advice and the things that they're saying is coming from a place of love, although it might be misguided. Um, and so I thought, why not give it a shot at like, you know, if I'm doing something that I'm happy and I can actually keep doing it, even if I'm making 30 or $40,000 a year, at least that sounds sustainable and more stable to me than doing something that you hate. I want to go back to this concept of stability because I'm wondering if you learned or if you believe now, like, is there such a thing as stability ever? This is, this is like one of my favorite concepts. So am I allowed to curse on this? <laughs> I I don't normally curse, but the, the one thing that I will say is that stability, um, as we think of it is, is just a notion that's full of crap. It it is completely just a load of BS. Um, at least that's the way that I've, I've come to see it because where in anything that we're taught, does it make sense that stability comes from relying on somebody else? or another company. Um, but that's essentially what we're being taught, right? That a stable job comes from relying upon someone else. And I just don't understand that at all. And, and I bought into it for, you know, the first two, three years of my professional career. Um, and then I started thinking like, well, that's possibly the least stable thing that I could think of. If anything, stability would come from self-reliance in almost every aspect of your life. 
but especially when it came to your career, the one thing that you have complete control over is your career, like your job, what you choose to do. If you want to be in business for yourself, if you want to, you know, whether you want to work for someone else, what, whatever it is that you want to do, this is something that you're complete control of. And I thought, if I leave corporate America and I go on to my own, um, I have a different kind of stability. I have a stability where every day, whatever I earn and whatever I do is completely reliant upon me. Um, and I know a lot of people that like, again, many of my friends are happy in the career path that they have chosen as a doctor or as a lawyer. And I think there is stability in that. If the career path that you've chosen is something that you love, that's the piece that's stable. It's not necessarily the job that you go and find. It's the choice of what you're doing is stable because if one job lets you, you know, you, you, lets you go or if you get fired or if you, you know, a recession hits, whatever it might be, if you're stable in your choice of a career, then you're probably good at that thing. And if you're good at that thing and you enjoy doing it, then you can simply move on and move to the next place and get another, you know, good job paying. And that to me is stable. But to be doing something that you hate, I can't think of anything more unstable than that. And it's funny because that, that same notion, I'm working on a, on a secret project, Ken, and I'll tell you about this later. But the same concept applies to relationships. It applies to your career choices. It applies to family. It applies to your spiritual you know, journey. If you're doing something, whether it's, you know, maybe you're in a, a relationship and you just feel obligated to be there, but you're not, you're not wanting to be there. That's not something that's stable or sustainable. And similarly, if you are believing in a religion because your parents taught you to, but you don't believe it, that's not stable, nor is it sustainable. Um, and each of those aspects of our lives, we do so much in all of these different arenas because we're taught to do them, not because we individually want to do them. And one by one, we reach a point of critical failure in each of these areas. And we reach a point of instability until we realize, until we learn what is the concept of stability. And oh, stability is comes from a place of making my own decisions and choosing the things that align with my own individual core values. So let's turn to what makes you feel most alive today. I, I go back to that whole challenge thing. I mean, um, there's, there's a couple things I feel like for me, I kind of live around experiences these days and it, and it's come from, <laughs> I, I've, I've gone through a lot of different steps along uh, my journey and, and, uh, it's, it's pretty much public knowledge now that I think I, I never made it, you know, publicly known, but, um, I think most people know that I am divorced and separated and, Going through that process, uh, boy, kind of, we're getting real, we're getting really real on this, uh, podcast here, but having gone through that, uh, I, I spent probably a good decade, um, pursuing things to kind of fill a void. And it was a, it was a very interesting process and I, I wouldn't consider myself materialistic really in any way. It was just like. But I would go from one thing to the next 
looking for that thing that could kind of make me happy until it was losing everything. In in the process of divorce, I, I lost everything. Um, and that was the only way that I could actually continue to uh, keep my business, which would then be able to enable me to pay, you know, for child support and alimony and whatnot. But I had to give up all of my assets to retain my ownership, which meant my my bank account, everything that I had went to zero. And I went from, you know, owning a home in California to a, a one bedroom uh, or a studio apartment, uh, you know, and, and having no furniture. And, and it was actually in that place where I gained my happiness. And it was a very interesting thing when you have everything else taken away from you you kind of look towards experiences uh, as being that meaningful thing. And it was having my kids and being able to spend time with them and being able to spend time with my, my friends, my family, without any thought or worry of anything else, but just to be able to enjoy and appreciate that time with them and to realize that all I really need is good experiences and I'll be happy. And so it kind of set me down a different path where now I, I want to live a very minimalistic life. If, if, if something is going to give my life value and, and I'm going to use it on a daily basis, I'll buy it. Um, but otherwise I kind of just don't want the clutter. Like I, I don't want to have things and what things that I do have, I want them to be very useful and I'd rather take my money and, and resources and time and spend it on experiences. And those things can come in many different forms. Um, I've always loved reading and books and education. So I spent even more time on it than I already do. And I, I spend a significant amount of time in those areas. Uh, but traveling and trips and new areas and taking on new hobbies and trying, you know, new things became that place where I found joy. And so I literally, that's what I mean in the process of saying, I found my joy in things that were once uncomfortable to me or, or things that are still uncomfortable. Um, and those are the things that have just kind of stuck with me. And, and these new experiences, these where you get that, it's funny because I've, I've honestly had that discomfort has been my compass. So if I don't want to go work out or if I feel discomfort in working out, I go and work out. And if I feel discomfort and like, oh man, eating clean and, and learning nutrition, that's going to be hard. That's what I go and do. And if I think, oh man, it'd be really cool to write a book, but I'm, I'm really freaked out about writing a book. That's what I go and do. And so each of these things that uh, that's literally been my, my compass is that feeling of discomfort. Your story really sounds like sort of this Joseph Campbell, like the hero's journey. <laughs> Um, as you, you, you are now kind of coming back around, I mean, being stripped to nothing really just shows you who you are. What is it that you've learned from your father, from sort of all of these experiences? Has that changed the way that you are parenting your children? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily changed the approach that I've had to to, to parenting my children. Um, I've always kind of held to, you know, the belief that giving my kids experiences and bringing them into my own hobbies and my own passions and the things that I enjoy doing was the best way to teach and encourage it rather than, you know, telling them what they need to do. 
Um, those things like kind of haven't really changed. What changed dramatically was the amount of emotional energy that I had to actually put towards those things. When all of my emotional energy was going towards sustaining a uh, unhealthy relationship and, and marriage, gosh, can I, does everybody want to know this kind of stuff? Yes, we relate <laughs> to it. This is how yes. we connect to what we are as humans. You know, I think that it's difficult to be in a relationship uh, with somebody or with two people who don't necessarily know who they are. Um, but it's impossible even if one of those people doesn't know who they are or if they're still trying to figure out, you know, what makes them happy or what – when when somebody doesn't know themselves, uh, it's, it's, it's very challenging to try and create structure and a family and all these different things. Um, so when all of my time and my energy and my emotional capacity was going towards sustaining this thing that was unhealthy, it drew all of my energy away from my kids. Um, it became like almost consuming to the point where all I could do was work. And when I wasn't working, it was thinking about how do I make this other thing in my life, this piece, this thing that's supposed to be for life. How do I make that work? And you, you begin this process of running this race that doesn't stop and you're running it at a pace that doesn't, it's just not sustainable. And, um, you end up putting more weight on your back and you end up running further and you just say, I'm going to, I'm going to carry it and I'm going to, I'm going to push forward and, and step by step, you're, joints way down and eventually you reach that place where you literally just can't take another step and you, you fall apart. Um, and for some people it might take months for others. It might take years for some, it, maybe they go 30, 40 years for me. It took just over 14 years before I said, I can't, I it, like it, it was, it was that ending piece. And so for the first few years of my, my kids' lives, I, I realized that I was there in body, but I wasn't there in, in, in spirit. It was while I would be at the recital or I'd be at the performance or I'd, I'd, I'd spend time with them and I'd come home and I would play with them. My mind was always preoccupied and it was a very sad thing to, to look back and to be looking at photographs and to see myself there and in a moment, but to not have any memory of it, like a, almost like a weird out of body experience, um, you know. Like you don't know who's in that picture because your mind was focused on so many other things at the time. You weren't present. Yeah. And, and you realize that for five, six years of my kids' lives, I wasn't, I wasn't present. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't there. So the only thing I can remember is seeing the photograph. But you don't remember why you were there or what you were doing or, you know, the memory or the, the feeling and the experiences that you had. So what I gained through the process was this new understanding of, of presence and spending time with the children. And I gained back the emotional energy necessary to actually do it. What is one of the, the ways that, that you have found helps you stay present? One of the ways that I found to help me stay present, um, this is going to sound odd perhaps, but 
knowing better who I am today, uh, I am a person that's very, very driven, very motivated. Um, I have a lot of ambition and I, and I want to do things on a daily basis that challenge me and, and push me forward. So I have found that if I am, no matter what I'm doing, um, doesn't matter whether I'm on vacation, doesn't matter whether, you know, I have the weekend with the kids, doesn't matter whether I'm working. I wake up early to get just a few hours of kind of productivity and the things that I really want to get done finished. So if I'm coming into the office, I'll come in just a couple hours earlier and work on all the things that are really pressing, the urgent things that I, I really need to get done. Um, and likewise, if I'm on vacation, um, that my, my secret project is a book, uh, Kenna, that I actually finished this, uh, a little, it's in the process of editing now, but it was when I'm on vacation to wake up and to write for two, three hours before my day began. So that way, when my day started, whether it was at work, whether it was with my kids, whether it was, you know, in any circumstance and scenario, when my day began, I was no longer feeling that kind of sense of anxiety of like, oh man, I really need to make time to get this thing done. It was already done. And wherever my day went from there, I could kind of just be present and say, I've already done those things. And now I can just kind of be in the moment. And if my employees need me, then I'm going to go help and I'm going to do the things that they need. And if my family wants to go out and do something, then I'm going to go and do those things. That was the big thing for me. And what's funny is now my, my girlfriend will actually like, if I, if we're on vacation, no matter what we're doing, she will literally kick me out of the bed at five or 6 AM every single day and say, you need to go and get whatever you need done right now. Because at nine or 10 AM, she knows that if I haven't done it, I'm going to be, she calls me grumpy bear. So I'm grumpy bear for the rest of the day. Once again, it's about knowing yourself committing to that and and having the support to kick you out of bed and 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 help you commit commit to that yeah pi thank you so much for an incredible conversation i know we didn't talk much about photography but that's you know that's what this podcast is all about <laughs> it's about us as humans as as photographers and as humans where can everybody uh, connect with you uh, tell us briefly about SLR Lounge. We have a lot to learn from you in, in all the ways. Well, that's sweet of you. So our client-serving side is Lynn and Jersa. So at Lynn and Jersa on Facebook and on Instagram, you can see our client-serving kind of wedding and portrait photography work. Um, my personal Instagram is just at PyJersa. So if anyone wants to follow or kind of see what I'm doing and what I'm up to, you can follow there. And then all of our education. So... What I've spent the last, I, I, I want to say it's a, been a good portion of my life. At the last decade within the world of photography has been creating education um, that I call frameworks for, for photographers. And it's, it's a little bit different than tips and tricks. These are kind of ground up, you know, from learning from the beginning of lighting all the way through to mastery, business, posing, everything the pieces that you need to be successful as a photographer. And those are all available on SLR lounge. So that's our educational platform at SLR lounge. Um, you can go to the website, srlounge.com as well. Um, but that's kind of what I do is it's the systems that are, are, are used inside of our studio 
where we take photographers and teach them ground up to become professionals. And we've made these available uh, online. So that's my other probably big passion is creating systems and frameworks. I look forward to the reveal of said secret project book. Thank you, Kenna. I appreciate it. And you'll be the first to know. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, we've got a class or two or thousands for you to check out. Just head on over to creativelive.com. For those of you brand new to Creative Live, welcome to our global community of over 10 million strong. We have a special gift just for you. Use the code WEARPHOTOGRAPHERS at checkout and get $10 off your very first purchase. The code is we are photographers, all one word, no spaces. In fact, you can use that $10 to pick up Pi Jersa's many classes here on Creative Live. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Thank you again to Pi Jersa, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.